This is Fair Examination on the Mormon Faircast. Fair Examination takes a close look at interesting and sometimes difficult issues facing the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and its members. David Matheson is a licensed psychologist at the Center for Gender Wholeness in Salt Lake City, Utah. His practice focuses on helping people with unwanted same-sex attraction. David received his Master's of Science degree in Counseling and Guidance from Brigham Young University in 1996. Afterwards, he practiced for seven years as a psychological assistant under Dr. Joseph Nicolosi. During his tenure, he co-created the Journey into Manhood Experiential Weekend with Ben Newman and began serving on the board of directors of People Can Change. He is an active member of the church and shares how the gospel of Jesus Christ has influenced his desire to serve men with same-sex attraction. He talks about some modern approaches and how these approaches fit within the stances of major medical institutions and their relationship with the church. He shares stories of success as well as some potential for harm associated with therapy. He clarifies some common misconceptions around therapy and the need to make this therapy available for those seeking it. He talks about how family, friends, and leaders can help with same-sex attraction and how that fits with their duty to bear one another's burdens. Welcome to Fair Examination. We are here today with David Matheson. He is a counselor at the Center for Gender Wholeness. Welcome. Thank you. So you're part of the Center for Gender Wholeness, which helps people with same-sex attraction. Yes. And the webpage says... Overcoming unwanted same-sex attraction is absolutely possible. What does overcoming unwanted same-sex attraction mean? To me, that means that a man who wishes to uh, change his sexual orientation is able to do so. Uh, and by change, uh, I actually mean to shift it. Um, so, uh, for example, a man who has strong attractions to other men and no attraction to women through the work that we do, many men, although I would never say all, but many men are able to diminish the strength of their sexual or attraction to other men and also to change the nature of it. In other words, change the way that attraction feels. Uh, and, and there are also men who are able to develop uh, or strengthen their attractions to the opposite sex. Okay. So we aren't talking of a lusting after going from lusting after men to lusting after women? Um, that's a little difficult to respond to. I mean, there are many men who lust after men, and they come to me because they want to discontinue that. Mm -hmm. uh, there are men who, through that process, become very attracted to women, and then they would have the choice if they wanted to lust after women. But, uh, no, our purpose is not to enable men to lust after women. Our purpose is a bit more, uh, more high-minded than that. Okay. So how how does your center your center do that? So what what's the process? Uh, the process is uh, there's a couple of pieces to the process. Um, the first piece is often um, well, well the very first piece is getting to know the man, uh, getting to know the very specific um, aspects of his life that are related here, uh, the causes behind his same sex attraction, and also the other issues that may be going on. We can talk about that perhaps later. So first, getting to know the man very specifically, because every man's same-sex attraction can be different. Uh, then second, there's a lot of education, helping the man understand himself, helping him understand uh, the things that are going on in his life in the present uh, time that cause the same-sex attraction to continue. 
And then there is the process of the work itself, which is uh, you know, basically processing the attractions, processing the feelings, and uh, changing the way his unconscious mind um, responds to things that have happened in his history and the way his unconscious mind is producing his attractions. So you say that you help people understand themselves and where they're coming from. And, and sometimes that process of helping them understand themselves begins with the process of deciding, do I want to change or do I not want to change? Uh, sometimes people come to me and they're not sure. Uh, that may be because they were sent in by their wife if they're married or by their parents if they're younger. Um, and so I will spend some time with those men helping them decide, do I really want to change or not? Because uh, the only way a man can make the kind of shifts that we're talking about is if he truly internally wants that. So no one can be forced to change. It's impossible to force someone to change. Completely impossible. So let's say that you have a client that that is in that situation where they are being pressured to change by a spouse or by their church leaders. How how, how do you handle that? Do you just determine that they don't want it and give up, or, or what do you do? Well, typically it would not be by the spouse or the church leaders. Typically it would be by the parents. Sometimes a spouse will you know, strongly lobby them, please go see this guy, you know, and then I'll talk to them and they'll say, you know, I have no desire to change. I'm actually on my way out of the marriage. Uh, but essentially what I do is I just help them process it, meaning that I help them look at um, their reasons for potentially changing. Why did they come to my office in the first place? Are they just placating their, their wife or their parents? Um, or is there some genuine uh, desire or interest on their part? Um how do they feel about their homosexuality? How do they feel about the church? How do they feel about the gospel? Um, and so through um, exploring those things, those men tend to come to a clearer understanding of what they really want. Um, and it's, you know, it's not uncommon that a man, after that process, uh, will say, you know what, thank you for your help. I appreciate your listening ear. And um, I really, really just don't want to do the process of change. And then there's a uh, and, and always there is a respectful um, um, parting of ways. Cool. Cool. So respect people's agency to choose. Well, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. What are some of the reasons that people typically want to change their sexual orientation? Well, I should probably just let you know that I've worked uh, on both coasts, Los Angeles and New York area, as well as here in Salt Lake. And um, in all those different places, I've worked with everything across the spectrum in terms of uh, religious denomination, uh, literally Jews, Muslims, Baptists, all kinds of um, Protestants, um, and a lot of members of the church. So the majority of the men that I've worked with have come to me because their faith, whatever that faith may be, um, is in contradiction with the idea of being homosexual. Um, I have worked with a number of men, however, who don't have any particular belief in God, and their desire to change is because they just don't want the lifestyle, or because they're sort of somewhere in the middle. Very often those men might be married, um, or they just uh, married and wanting to keep the marriage together, or they just don't feel like they want to, they don't want to be gay. It's just not who they are. It's just not what they want, despite the fact that they may have very strong attractions to other men. Is this a type of reparative therapy that we hear about? Um, what I do is very similar to what has been called reparative therapy. I use the term gender wholeness therapy um, for a number of reasons. One is because I dislike the term reparative therapy because it's uh, a highly misunderstood term. But also I really prefer the word, uh, the term gender wholeness because I think that that's what we're really trying to do is to create a sense of wholeness 
uh, around a man's gender. Okay, so you talk about reparative therapy, that term being misunderstood. How has it been misunderstood? Yes, um, the term reparative in reparative therapy actually refers to repairing the broken bond that exists between most men with same-sex attraction and their fathers. Uh, Dr. Joseph Nicolosi has talked a lot and written a lot about the concept of defensive detachment, and that defensive detachment is what he would consider a break in the bond between uh, between son and his father, which then gets um, transferred onto or generalized onto men in general. I see that that is the case with perhaps the majority of the men I work with, and it's not the case with all the men I work with. And so reparative therapy would be too small of a term, actually, for the for the work that I do. But the term has been uh, misconstrued to actually mean that we're saying that gays are broken and have to be put back together, have to be repaired, which, of course, is not what Dr. Nichols means by that term. But uh, I prefer to not use a term that is so easily misunderstood. So you're saying that not all the men that you work with have this broken relationship with their fathers. That, yeah, my experience is that many do, probably the majority do, but I don't see that all do. You've talked about that there's various different causes of the same-sex uh, attraction. What would be some of the other causes that you typically see? Well, I think in terms of risk factors, uh, and there, there are, are quite a number of risk factors, and any combination of those risk factors can uh, lead to same-sex attraction. So the risk factors include, um, and I may not be able to remember all of them, but they include uh, a, an inability to connect with other men, which is what we were just talking about, the break in the bond, the uh, inability to attach to other men. Um, it can also include what I call gender incongruity, which means that a man grows up feeling that his self-concept does not match his gender concept. In other words, who he sees himself as being does not match what he thinks, what society has taught him perhaps, a man is supposed to be. So he feels incongruent with his own maleness. Uh, those are two key risk factors. In addition to that, there's some other risk factors uh, like sexual abuse, which is very common uh, among the men that I work with. And there's also um, sort of classical conditioning, meaning that if a boy uh, had a lot of sexual experimentation with other boys early on, uh, that can lead to or that can be a risk factor that can influence uh, a, a boy growing up to become uh, highly sexually aroused by other males. I also find some other things that are quite typical and common among the men I work with. These would be called comorbid conditions. In other words, psychological conditions that don't cause homosexuality but can contribute to it particularly anxiety, depression, and most of all, obsessive compulsiveness or perfectionism. So that, that, those are some of the main risk factors that I tend to see. Um, the, a whole other set that I should bring up, though, is biological factors that do not cause homosexuality, but that in, the, um, in a certain environment can, could um, uh, contribute to it, such as a boy who matures late, and therefore, he feels shame around his body because while all the other boys in the seventh grade shower room uh, or locker room are uh, growing hair, he's not. Or the exact opposite, a boy who's hairier than all of his friends. I've seen that a, a few times. Uh, a boy who has a, an illness early in life, which prevents him from being actively in, involved in sports. Boys who are just kind of coor uh, uncoordinated and don't do well with sports. You know, so there are a lot of biological factors as well that can contribute. Now, I don't think any of those factors in and of themselves, will cause homosexuality. Um, but those connected, those when you get a grouping of those, 
and then that grouping becomes sexualized. So, for example, if you have a boy who falls behind in sports because he's just not coordinated, uh, so there's a biological thing, who also does not have a good relationship with his father, maybe his father's too busy to help him play sports, who also then uh, comes to see himself as not being sufficiently masculine. And then that's all happening before puberty. Then puberty hits, and he's really interested in his male peers because they're better at athletics. He thinks their bodies look better. He can't connect with them and really, really wants to. Puberty hits. Sexual feelings start to emerge. And those sexual feelings can very often get confused with his feelings of longing or envy toward other boys. And that can be one um, – that can be, be the beginning of uh, same-sex attraction, and that's a very common scenario. So you've mentioned – several different factors that could contribute, and you've always been very careful to say could or may in some circumstances. So you don't necessarily know for sure for a given person what caused them. Um, I would say the opposite. I would say that for a given person, once I investigate their life pretty clearly, um, it's pretty clear what caused it. Okay. Yeah. The reason I use all of the could and, and might is because all of these risk factors occur across the population. They occur in the homosexual population, and they occur in the heterosexual population. In other words, you have a lot of heterosexual guys who are bad at sports, who don't feel sufficiently masculine, that have a difficult time with their father, who don't identify with other men, but they're not homosexual. Uh, and that's because for those men, uh, they may have other issues. They may have low self-esteem or not feel very masculine or whatever. But for those males, the risk factors were not enough, or they just didn't get sexualized. So in other words, to create homosexuality, you have to have uh, the risk factors and, you know, enough, quote-unquote, of the risk factors. And for one boy, one risk factor may be enough. For another boy, it may take seven risk factors. But you have to have these risk factors, but then they also have to be sexualized. Okay. So just because someone has all of these risk factors doesn't mean they will um, develop homosexuality. And when you talk about someone becoming homosexual, are you talking about their attractions, or they will involve in the behavior? I mean, what do you mean by someone becoming homosexual? That's a good clarifying question. I'm talking about their attraction. So I, I should actually use the term same-sex attracted. They could develop attractions to other boys. Okay, which obviously could lead to same-sex behavior. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and also, just to clarify, from the church's perspective, um, Elder Oaks, when he was asked about the causes of same-sex attraction, he says those are scientific questions, whether nature or nurture. Those are things the church doesn't have a position on. So, uh -huh. so these are just um, what you've seen um, working with, you know, out there in the field working with people. Yeah, and it's what I've seen over uh, really a period of about 20 years and hundreds of men. So it's not like I sampled a couple. Right, right. And I, I think there's definitely some stereotypes that people do associate with, whether they want to or not. Yeah. And some of the stereotypes are very, very accurate, and some are not. Right. Exactly. Um, so there are people who say that this type of therapy um, is actually, instead of helping gay people, is anti-gay, and that it would be better for them just to accept them themselves for who they are rather than trying to tell them that they're inadequate. How would you respond to an accusation like that? That's a very convoluted concept that really needs to be unwound. Um, 
So first of all, we have to differentiate between the term gay and the term same-sex attraction. And this is more a, a distinction of convenience in conversation. So gayness or being gay is really more of a sociopolitical identity. Uh, these are people who are choosing to go with their attractions, choosing to, uh, you know, live a life that includes that, that's oriented around that perhaps, uh, versus the men that I work with, which would not most of them consider themselves gay, but would consider some, themselves something more like being afflicted with unwanted same-sex attraction. So in terms of gays and lesbians, to try to do the work that I do with them against their will would be unethical, uh, immoral and wrong, mm-hmm. and I would never attempt to do such a thing, because they they have the freedom in our pluralist society, uh, and according to our beliefs, you know, in the gospel, they have the freedom and the right, they have the agency to do what they will with their sexuality, uh, and I um, I feel quite strongly that their uh, right to live their life uh, unimpeded by you know um, others uh, is a God given right. That doesn't mean I'm pro-gay. It does, that definitely does not mean that I believe that gays should have special rights, which I do not. However, they should be afforded the same dignity that, that heterosexuals are afforded. Um, so if we move that aside, then what we're really talking about is a population of men and women, those that I work with, um, who, although I work with just men, but uh, women would be included in what I'm saying, who do not want homosexuality as a part of their life. They don't want the attractions. They don't want the behavior. And so, um, in my opinion, anything that gets in the way of them receiving the kind of help that they want is also unethical, immoral, and wrong. In other words, men with unwanted same-sex attraction should be afforded the kind of therapy that I do. Uh, and the kind of therapy that I do actually does help men. Uh, it does, you know, help them accomplish their goals. And so I have a hard time understanding how that could be um, uh, wrong in any way. To bring back to the church's standpoint on therapy, um, in that same interview with the Church Public Affairs, um, Elder Wickman said it may be appropriate for that person to seek therapy. Certainly, the church doesn't counsel against that kind of therapy, but from the standpoint of a parent counseling a person or a church leader counseling a person or a person looking at his or her same gender attraction from the same standpoint of what can I do about it? That's in keeping with the gospel teachings. The clinical side of it is not what matters most. What matters most is recognition that I have my own will. I have my agency. I have the power within myself to control what I do. Now, that's not to say it's not appropriate for somebody with an affliction to seek appropriate clinical help to examine whether in his or her case there's something that can be done about it. This is an issue that those in psychiatry and the psychology profession have debated. Cases, case studies, I believe, have shown in some cases there have been progress made in helping someone to change that orientation. Another case is not. From the church's standpoint, from our standpoint of concern for people, that's not where we place our principal focus. It's on these other matters. So from the church's um, standpoint, it's not clinical side that matters most. Um, they talk about other things that can be done. How does the the stuff that you do, the clinical side of things, integrate with these other um, things that they can do in in keeping with gospel teachings? Well, the church has a role to help people accomplish the process of sanctification and return to Heavenly Father. Um, And that role is um, a pretty basic, simple, at least in terms of explanation, that doesn't mean it's easy, but it's a simple role. 
Um, and so they're concerned with worthiness. They're concerned with fellowshipping um, and that sort of thing. And that's their place. That's their role. Uh, and I appreciate that they don't try to take on a role that they're not um, really prepared or qualified to do, which is the work that I do. Um, what, what I've noticed, however, with uh, a lot of men that I've worked with is that um, the idea of living uh, life uh, – how I this, living worthily within the church, although they desire that, um, trying to do that without clinical help uh, with the issues, the underlying issues of same-sex attraction, becomes very difficult because the attractions become so strong, particularly if the needs behind them or the issues behind them are not dealt with therapeutically. Uh, they become so strong that it's, um, it's, it's like handing Satan a... Uh, uh, a baseball bat, uh, and letting him just pummel us with it at will. That's what having untreated same-sex attraction is like in my experience. And so while the church does not have the responsibility uh, or the calling, perhaps, of uh, doing therapy with people, it's, uh, in my experience, really essential that people who want to live a life uh, in keeping with the gospel standards and the gospel principles receive therapy uh, in order to lessen the issues underneath it that would lead them away from the gospel. In other words, we need to take a baseball bat out of Satan's hand so that he doesn't have those those longings, those um, temptations that he can tempt us with and pummel us with. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I do know many people who, with same-sex attractions who swear by therapy, who don't know how they do it. And then there are other people who are less comfortable with therapy. I've, I've seen people on both sides of the issue, but who still have a testimony of the gospel and are living the standards. Yeah, and I think that, I mean, obviously, I'm a therapist, and so I'm going to see the men who really want therapy. Right. And I'm not going to see the men who um, are able to get through their life and live, you know, live a worthy life without it. And I, uh, I don't know those men. I haven't seen those men. Uh, and so I can't speak one way or the other about them. I have seen men who have um, been, you know, done some therapy and then gone out of therapy uh, and who have not done very well after that. So I have somewhat of a bias against the idea of, uh, or a bias toward the idea that therapy is an important part of the overall process. So would you say that for some men, therapy um, seems to be an, an essential part for them to be able to lead, live the standards of the gospel, and by taking that therapy away, it would cause them great harm? Absolutely. Very strongly, I would say that. Okay. Just because I've seen it. I've seen it happen. So there are people, critics of the church, who say that this um, therapy has been discredited, that it doesn't work, and that people who, who say they've been helped by it are making things up. Um, I have a report from the American Psychological Association, which is called The Appropriate Therapeutic Responses to Sexual Orientation. And the purpose of this report um, was to talk about the effectiveness of therapeutic responses to sexual orientation, specifically sexual orientation change efforts. Um, uh-huh. And what they said is, quote, Although the recent studies do not provide causal evidence of the efficacy of sexual orientation change efforts or of its harm, 
Some recent studies document that there are people who perceive they have been harmed through sexual orientation change efforts, just as other recent studies document there are people who perceive they have benefited from it. So they're not saying that sexual orientation works or that it doesn't work, that there's no causal evidence, but it seems to be other types of evidence, such as anecdotal evidence and other things. What type of evidence have you seen that this type of therapy is beneficial? Actually, let me back up first, because I would agree with the APN on that statement. I, I suspect, not that I've seen a lot of this, but I suspect that there probably are a number of individuals who have been harmed by attempts to change their sexual orientation. Uh, but it's important to keep in mind that when we say um, you know, different kinds of, uh, I forget what the term is, um, sexual orientation change um, therapies or experiences, we're talking about a wide variety of interventions, all the way from pastoral counseling, um, uh, demonic cleansing in some you know, religious circles, um, to the sort of work that I do. I mean, there's a huge range of what people out there try to do, and some of it I'm convinced is probably quite harmful. Um, so, but going back to your question, um, restate your question. You talked about the harm. I wanted to talk a little bit. Well, since we're on the harm, let's continue talking about that. Okay, good. Earlier you talked about shamed base and getting rid of shamed. And it seems like there are a lot of sexual orientation change efforts that do focus on feeling shame for who you are and feeling shame for your attractions. What, how does shame um, play into the therapy? Well, first of all, I would say that the individual, the, the client, uh, brings shame to the experience. Um, and I, I can imagine that there might be some pastors or really bad therapists who might use shame in the process. I've never met such a person. It's hard to imagine that they would exist, but, you know, I'm sure they do. Uh, but the main thing is that the, the client, the man himself, brings shame into the experience because he, they typically feel a good deal of shame about uh, their sexual orientation. Uh, and so if a, if a therapist is not wise to that and is not able to help the man get through the shame, which is sometimes a pretty tricky thing to do, um, then that shame could continue to be a part of the man's personality and could undermine the therapy, and the man could go away saying, well, I feel more ashamed now than I did when I started. And so his perception could be that the therapy did him harm. Um, and there are a good deal of other issues that could be going on in a man's personality that if not dealt with in the therapy could cause a man to go away and feel that he was done harm. For example, if a man is bipolar, which is a particular psychiatric disorder that's uh, pretty uh, pretty harsh for people. If a man's got bipolar or let's say he's got severe depression, he's got severe obsessive-compulsive disorder, um, and the therapist who's working with him on sexual reorientation does not understand that that's going on and does not treat that or send him to someone, a psychiatrist or someone who can treat that, then the man is not going to change. There's not going to be any shift in his sexuality in my experience. And he could become suicidal um, uh, and could become, you know, more depressed, uh, et cetera. So these are some of the ways in which harm can be done to a client that's mostly not about the efforts to uh, shift or change sexual orientation, but has to do with improper care, meaning that the man does not get the right kind of care. He's got a lot more going on than the same-sex attraction. Did that make sense? Yes, that makes sense, yeah. Um, so then also, if the therapist involved does not really know how to treat 
or does not know how to intervene uh, with sexual orientation. Uh, if he kind of thinks, well, you know, I'll just do my best, um, but he doesn't really know how to how to help the man shift or change, then he could also do harm to the man just by making things worse, by taking a wrong approach. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there, I can't imagine quite a number of ways in which men could be done harm. Um, but that should not be – we should not confuse ourselves and think that sexual orientation change uh, attempts are in and of themselves harmful. Any uh, any um, any person with any disorder could be harmed if the therapist treating him doesn't know what he's doing, in other words. Right. Therapy has some inherent risks no matter what. It always does. It always does. Yeah. Right. And the more experienced you are uh, and the more specialized you are in a field – the less likely you're going to harm someone. And especially because, as you mentioned, pastoral care would be part of this, and there's many um, in pastoral care who are untrained Mm -hmm. and don't know exactly how to handle some of these more complicated issues. Right. And in our church, we have pastoral counseling, um, uh, which basically means bishops talking to their their ward members. Uh, And... uh, to be really honest with you, I have seen bishops and state presidents do a tremendous amount of harm uh, with certain individuals. Now, is that widespread? No, it's not. Uh, but I have seen a few cases where the um, interventions from priesthood leaders has caused far more damage and far more harm uh, uh, to the individual. Right. Um, another common um, harm that is reported is that this therapy puts unrealistic expectations on the client that can result in depression if not met. Um, how do you help a client keep realistic expectations? That is a really good question that I'm anxious to answer. Similar to what I said about shame, the unrealistic expectations to, tend to come in the door with the client, uh, at least in my experience. The client comes in, you know, I really want to get married, um, I really want to have kids. And let's say that that client is 50 years old and has never had a single attraction to another, uh, to, to a member of the opposite sex. Uh, so then it's going to be my job over the t- time to help that man diminish his same-sex attraction to the degree appropriate and to help him absorb the reality that he may not marry and he probably isn't going to have children if he's starting this at 50 years old. Although I must say that I, I did work with a guy on the East Coast who was about in that age bracket, and he did get married. I don't think they had kids, but he did get married. So um, so in terms of unrealistic expectations, if a therapist is not wise and uh, a man comes to him and says, I want to change my sexual orientation, and the man says, I know you can do it. Let's, you know, let's buckle down and let's do it. I know you can do it. Um, then the therapist may be intensifying the man's own unrealistic expectations. Uh, but if the therapist is wise and experienced enough, he's going to know, that part of what we have to do with any individual is to help them uh, manage their expectations and to, uh, you know, again, over time, help them come to terms with what the reality of their future is. So it's not my job to tell someone, no, I don't think they'll ever get married. That would be very wrong. It would also be uh, wrong for me to say, I know you can get married, you know, within a few years you'll be married because I, I can't control either one of them. Right. Right. So you talked about it would be harmful to um, a therapist to go to every single client and say, I know you can change your sexual orientation. Um, So what about these people who who try to change their sexual orientation and are not successful? 
Um, I did want to bring in this quote. In the year 2000, Elder Packer said that it may be a struggle from which you will not be free in this life. If you do not act on temptations, you need to feel no guilt. So what would you do if it comes, a, a client feels, and, and you feel that a change in sexual orientation is not possible for a client? Um, and I have seen that. I've seen that, you know, many times. Um, let me put it in a context of, um, um, of, of, how do I say this? of the advancement of science. So in other words, uh, 50 years ago, we didn't know much at all about changing sexual orientation. I mean, Freud had worked with a few people, Sigmund Freud, Anna Freud had worked with a few people, and there were some others who had shown that sexual orientation could be shifted or changed. Um, but it was the, the kind of therapy that I do was not widespread. And so a statement like President Packer's at the time would be very appropriate, and it's still appropriate. There are many people who, despite the fact that I exist and that what I do is often successful, will never hear about therapy, will never receive therapy, and will never make progress. And they will deal with it their entire lives. Uh, and there are people who today who I can't help. There are people who come to me, they want help, I do my best. There are, uh, you know, various things going on in their personality or in their unconscious that I cannot change. Um, uh, and so they will also not be able to change their sexual orientation. What I find is that if a man doesn't have a lot of other stuff going on, that shift, helping him shift his sexual orientation is not the hardest thing to do. It's really not that hard. Um, what makes it hard is when there's a lot of other stuff, uh, extreme negative self-beliefs, obsessive compulsiveness, et cetera. But, again, there are some individuals who just will not be able to do that. What becomes my responsibility then is to help them absorb that reality over time as it becomes clear that they're just not making the progress they want help them absorb that, and help them make choices around that. Uh, there was a case several years back on the East Coast, uh, a Jewish man who kept saying to me, you wanted to change, you wanted to change, you wanted to change. Um, in fact, this was a rabbi. And uh, at some point, I realized that everything he was telling me about his life outside of therapy was completely different from what he was telling me inside therapy. And so I, in that case, had to be the one to break the news to him or to, to, to invite him to consider the idea that, I don't think that you really do want to change. Uh, and so that was, again, that was my, it became my responsibility. And then to help him absorb the reality that indeed he didn't really want to change. And he was just doing to try to be social, uh, to uh, fit in societally. So yeah, it becomes my responsibility to help the man absorb that reality and to uh, make choices based on that. Okay. Good. And I've done that a number of times. And they could go on and be very productive, very, um, spiritual people in the church. Sure. Yeah. So nothing stops them from being good members of the church. Yeah. Um, many of them, though, by the time they get to that point, they have decided that they um, uh, cannot um, continue to live the standards of the gospel because their desires are so much stronger uh, than their, their hope in the gospel plan. And right. so very often those men, uh, you know, take another route and go into the gay lifestyle. Is there anything else about the harm that you wanted to discuss? Not about the harm, but let me let me bring up another concept that I think would be very important and interesting to your listeners, and that is the concept of what I call the, a hope window. Um, a hope window is a period of time during which a man has a sincere hope and belief that he can change uh, and that he can, you know, uh, 
shift to sexual orientation and live uh, according to all the principles of the gospel, including the idea of temple marriage that's, that's happy and um, um, joyful. So the hope window begins when a man first has the idea of trying to change uh, or trying to shift his sexual orientation. And the hope window expires when the hope's gone. Uh, and so the hope window can last for a very long time or can last for a very short time. Um, things that cause the hope window to close are when a man has been told that nothing can be done, uh, when a man has been told uh, to just live the gospel, but that there's really no help for him otherwise. In other words, if a man doesn't know that therapy is available and he badly needs it, um, the hope window can be closed by therapists who don't know, you know, how to treat a man, how to how to work with it. Uh, I've had, I can't tell you how many men come to me that have been to LDS Family Services practitioners who are not very trained in this issue, um, and they've come away from those experiences feeling very diminished and very um, sort of beaten up. Uh, they, they really hope that this therapist would be able to help them. He wasn't able to. They go to another therapist somewhere else who's not able to help them. Uh, they come to me, and often I am able to help them, and sometimes I'm not. Um, so these kinds of things cause the hope window to close. Uh, and so it's important for us in the church to try to keep the hope window open as long as possible, but more importantly, to get a man to the right kind of help while the hope window is open. Because nothing's more more sad for me in my in my work than to meet with a man who finally comes to me and he's been trying to change for ten years. He's tried this, he's tried that, and the other, and nothing has helped. And then by the time he makes it to my office, he says, "I'm done. I have no more energy. Even though you're telling me that you're able to help a lot of people, I just no longer want to try." Um, so I have a a strong desire to see us in the church be able to. Uh, you know, get men to the place where they can be helped while the hope window is open. One, yeah, one of the big things to help people to do that is for them to be educated on what's yeah. available mm-hmm. and um, to really understand the the pros and cons and, and what happens. And we've right. discussed a lot of um, potential harms um, right. that's available and what can be done to mitigate those potential harms. I now want to talk about some of the benefits that you okay. can so you've talked a lot specifically about um, changing sexual sexual orientation. Can you talk about um, like what percentage you see happen that and and what they're able to do with it? Yeah. So in terms of percentage, um, it has been a long, long time since I have done a survey of my clientele, and so I actually can't give you a figure that would be current. Um, I'll give you the old figure, but it was it was a long time ago. It was before I knew a lot of the stuff that I know now, so I hope that my figures are better than this. But of the men who, and this was, again, this is probably eight or more years ago, uh, of the men that really stayed in therapy, and there are quite a number of men who didn't really engage, you know, that kind of came to a session or two, and I, I just wasn't what they wanted, or they didn't think I knew what I was talking about, or they realized they really didn't want to change. But of those who stayed, uh, 75% achieved their goal. Now, what I mean by achieved their goal or felt helped by the end. Now, that could mean a wide variety of things from that their uh, same-sex attraction had diminished to a point where it was no longer even a bother or that it had diminished sufficiently and they had learned to, uh, you know, how to live life around it um, so that they were happy and fulfilled. Um and, you know, there are other things that could mean as well. 
but 75% experienced a sense of being helped. Um, and the other 25%, I was not able to help, or they were not able to make the changes that they wanted. So about 75%, I would say, was a, was a positive um, outcome. So what were some of the benefits that they've that you've seen besides the actual changing of the orientation? Okay. So um, you could break down the, the benefits into a number of categories. One is just the overall quality of life. Uh, so lessening of anxiety is a major one. Lessening of depression. Uh, diminishing of negative uh, thoughts about self. Increase in self-esteem. Um, yeah, so all of those basic, um, you know, uh, quality of life, uh, psychological issues, a lot of improvement in those. Um, a, a lot of improvement also in a sense of knowing who they are and being happy with who they are, happy with the direction of their life, and uh, particularly strong ones feeling more masculine and being able to have better connections with other men. So those are some of the, the big ones. Uh, in terms then of sexuality, uh, diminishing or cessation of sexual addiction is a big one because sexual addiction is um, frequent although definitely not a rule. Uh, in other words, it's not, I'm not even sure if I would, well, I'd probably say that more than 50% of the men that I work with have some sort of compulsive or addictive sexual behavior. And so there's a change in that um, that's very beneficial. Uh, and then uh, the shifting of the sexual orientation itself, so diminishing of attractions to other men, a di a diminishing of the intensity of it, but also more of an understanding of it. So, in other words, looking at a man jogging down the street with his shirt off, instead of it being, you know, a lust attack or it being a trigger to use pornography or, or, or something else, it's experienced more as, oh, there's a guy jogging with his shirt off. He looks nice, and that's really not that big of a deal. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just kind of like, yeah, there he is. Okay, he's, he's attractive, but whatever. I don't really care that much. Uh, or there may be, you know, a focus on, wow, he's really good looking. I wish I looked like that, or I wish I felt like he looks. Um, but there's just a shift because it's no longer uh, the, the cause of lust or, or envy or a cause of shame himself. So that's another big change. And then for some men uh, that are married, uh, there's an improvement in the relationship with their wife because their wife starts to feel appreciated. The man uh, is more calm, he's more centered, more focused, more masculine. Uh, more capable of leading in the house. Um, and, of course, wives always enjoy it when sexual addiction is overcome by their husband. Uh, so marriages tend to improve. Uh, the sexual relationship between the husband and wife tends to improve a great deal. Um, and for some men who are not married at the beginning of therapy, uh, there are you know, quite a number of them who develop attractions to women. And then there are also those who marry. I couldn't give you a percentage. I wish I could, but I don't know. Uh, but there are, you know, men who are single at the beginning and who get married and go on to live um, happy, fulfilling lives. Yes, that is definitely a good um, benefit for a lot of people to be able to all of those things. And it seems like these are things that that would be good for anyone. Right. Um, that's not like it's only this particular people who think that these things are good, but this sounds good for every, anyone. You know, I should also mention that relationship with God, uh, regardless of the denomination of the person, uh, testimony and the gospel, those things tend to improve as well. Because same-sex attraction, uh, untreated, out-of-control same-sex attraction, is really destructive to testimony. 
as is um, untreated if someone has a sexual, a heterosexual sexual addiction or. Yeah, definitely. So uh, it seems like a lot of those things would apply equally to people with opposite sex attraction. Well, and also people with a lot of anxiety and depression, uh, particularly right. depression, can really uh, create a distance between them and God. So I want to talk a little bit about marriage. Okay. President Hinckley has said that marriage should not be viewed as a therapeutic step to solve problems such as homosexual inclinations or practices. Um, but you've mentioned marriage as a goal in or an end point, a benefit of therapy. Can you talk about that a bit more? Yeah, and it, uh, you just made a good distinction in terms that's important. Uh, it would should never, definitely, it should never be uh, used as a solution because it's not. It is a desire for many of the single men that I work with. I want to marry and have a family. I would not, I would be uncomfortable making it a therapeutic goal uh, because we can't control it. Uh, but certainly it is a desire for many people. Uh, so my job is to just help them become as healthy as they possibly can, to become as um, as fulfilled as they can. And if marriage follows that, that's great. Uh, but that wouldn't be, I mean, that may be a goal that they bring in, but it wouldn't be something that I would take on as something that I thought I could create or control because I can't. When should a man consider, or a person with same-sex attraction, rather, when should they consider that they're they're in a state where they could get married and when not? Let's say that they don't have access to therapy. That's a difficult question, particularly the last piece that you brought in. Let, let me back up. I would say a man should marry when the Lord brings him the spouse that he's intended to marry. <laughs> and so I, I've seen that happen, you know, all across the board. If I were to If I were to take out the guidance of the Spirit, if I take that out of the, the equation, which, of course, to me, that's the most important thing, but mm-hmm. taking that out of the equation, um, I would say that with the men that I work with, I encourage them to, if they ask me, and they don't always, I, I encourage them to start dating. First of all, I don't encourage them to start dating. I let them decide if and when they want to. In other words, I would never make it my job to say, I think you should start dating now. Um, but if they start saying, you know, I'm wondering if I'm ready to start dating, then I'll advise them or I'll, I'll uh, you know, consider that with them. And I would consider it a good time to start dating when the same-sex attraction has uh, really diminished so that it's not much of an issue, um, so that it's not going to get in the way. And when they are starting to feel um, actual spontaneous attractions to the opposite sex, because why start dating someone if you're not genuinely attracted, if there's not a genuine desire? Uh, now, that's just me. And I have no desire to be very dogmatic about that viewpoint because I realize that each man is a, is a unique case. And, um, you know, who am I to decide what, uh, what God has in mind for that, for that man and his uh, future spouse? In terms of men who are not in therapy, I'm not quite sure how to answer that question. Okay. You talked about spontaneous attraction to the opposite sex. At what point in therapy does that, I mean, does that differ from forced attraction to the opposite sex or yeah well there's really no such thing as forced attraction there's there's forced attempts at being attracted but it's not really attraction it's just like i'm trying to be attracted to her but i'm not um yeah spontaneous attraction is when a man starts noticing that he's looking around and he's seeing women and he's viewing them in a different way and he's finding them to be interesting they're raising curiosity uh maybe some of them are starting to arouse him 
um, when he looks at them. There's a new appreciation for them. And for each man, it's different. And again, I, ha- I have no desire to ever be dogmatic uh, or to say, well, your attraction isn't enough or it's not spontaneous enough or it's not strong. That's not my job. Right. Um, you know, so, so my job is to help each man um, you know, find what he's capable of. Uh, but yeah, there, there's a certain time, and I can't tell you in terms of months or, you know, uh, a certain stage of therapy, but there comes a time for many men where they start to feel some sort of a, a an internally generated, uh, you know, spontaneous interest in uh, women. Okay. Which is pretty exciting for them very often. There, there are people who get married before they, they feel that they're ready. You know, there's people who who get married and like, well, and haven't dealt with their same sex attractions, right. um, and then and then come to you after marriage, right? To try to get it. So you talked a lot about them, the individuals, making sure that they're a whole person and um, that their other issues are taken care of. What type of things could help the marriage to work? Um, very often these days, if a man comes to me and he's married, um, I will pretty quickly direct them to a couple therapist, uh, to work with the couple. And very often, in fact, almost typically, I will encourage the wife to go to a therapist for her, uh, for her needs as well. So very often when I've got uh, a man who's married, there are two or three therapists working with them. I'm working with the husband and someone else is working with either her and the couple or someone's working with her, and a third person's working with a couple. Because they're each each entity, the man, the wife, and the couple, that's three entities, have different needs. Um, very often, I mean, there are some wives who just go, you know what, I'm just cool, I'm supportive, you know, I'm fine with this, let's just keep going. But many wives have a difficult time with this. He's not who uh, she thought he was. She feels betrayed. She's anxious. She doesn't know what he's doing. If he has been uh, unfaithful, she, her trust has been broken. So these women just need a lot of support and sometimes some real help to work through their, their issues. And if they don't get that, they will impede my work with him. Because what I find over and over is if the wife is having a tough time with it, then the marriage is having a tough time and the husband's having a tough time. And we spend most of our sessions talking about her. Uh, so... Um, I'm not quite sure I'm answering your question, but but it's very important that all three of those entities get the help that they need. Did that answer your question, or do you yes. want to restate? No, that's that's a great answer. But then part of it then is uh, the the person working with the couple and me also working with the husband to learn how to be a husband, because mm-hmm. a lot of guys with same sex attraction really didn't learn how to be a husband very well. Some did, and many didn't. Uh, you know, and so helping him to realize what her needs are, that she needs to feel safe, that she needs to trust him, that he needs to learn how to lead in the house, because very often men with SSA are, are quite passive. And so, you know, helping him to become more more masculine and more uh, the leader in the home, et cetera, those sorts of things are very important, and they really help her, and they really help the marriage. So it's interesting you talk about the man leading in the home, and You've definitely, we've definitely heard things about the priesthood leader in the home and how, how that's played a part. And people have attacked that concept of the man leading in the home, but you find that to be helpful? Well, I find, again, this is you know, my, my, my sample, my clientele. I find that the women that I know want a man to lead in the home. 
Um, and that doesn't mean that they want him to be authoritarian or anything like that. They want him to lead in the, in the way that Christ led the church, you know, with love, but also with strength, um, to be decisive, to be, to lead by, um, to lead by influence, not by domination or authority, to lead by influence. And influence, uh, to begin with, is comes out of love. Uh, and so men with same-sex attraction, some are very capable of doing that. Uh, and many others are not, either because they're just not mature enough yet or because they're absorbed in their own pain or their own issues or their own uh, sexual addiction. Uh, and so, yeah, but, but the wives are hungry for the men to step up and really lead uh, in the home. I have heard um, members who have given advice that we should not talk about same-sex attractions if it's in the past um, with our spouse. And what what role do you think that open communication plays in the marriage? It depends greatly. Although I gosh, I think that in any in almost any case, uh, at least if, if, within LDS culture, uh, within our our faith. I would encourage almost any man, and I never want to say any, I never want to be absolute, but almost any man, regardless of how far in the past the same-sex attraction is, to disclose that to uh, a woman before he marries her. I, I think she just needs to know him that well. Um, in other cultures, in, in Orthodox Jewish culture, I, I know that there was at least one uh, case where I encouraged the man not to, not, I didn't encourage it, actually, he suggested, and I, I concurred, that it probably was not a good idea to bring up because it was so far in the past and in their society, it's a whole different thing. But in ours where there's more openness around it, um, I would encourage them to, um, even if they were not feeling like they wanted to, I'd probably encourage them to be open with their spouse. Um, if, um, if it's in the recent past, very definitely he needs to talk to her about it. And he needs to be pretty specific. You know, if he has you know, had behavior or even just a lot of, uh, a lot of thoughts, uh, she needs to understand that before she marries him so that she can make an informed decision. And very often women say, you know what, I trust you, I love you, the Spirit is telling me that you're, you're the, the, the person for me, and let's go ahead with this. That's, that's quite typical, actually. If in the marriage where the wife, where the man is currently dealing with the issues, mm -hmm. and does the wife know or not know? And how much do you disclose to the wife? That's a whole other topic that's really, really important. Uh, so if a man is in, actively involved in therapy, there have been men I've worked with, um, probably in the church, but I know a few outside of the church, who uh, never told their wife. And she, he went all the way through therapy with me. She never knew. Um, and there have been a few cases where, from what the husband said, from what I could tell from the wife, um, I didn't fight him on it. It's not really my job to tell him what to do anyway. I encouraged it. But when he said, you know what, it would be so over if she knew, um, just because she would not be able to tolerate, um, you know, tolerate what was, you know, tolerate the situation. And I'm not talking about situations where the man was uh, putting her at risk by his sexual behavior or anything like that, uh, just situations where she just did not have the capacity to really understand or deal with the issues. Um, that's pretty rare, though. Uh, and again, I didn't encourage them not to tell. Um, I just know that they didn't, and I I think I agreed in a very few cases that it probably was wise that they didn't. But in the vast majority of cases, she needs to know. Um, and then it becomes a question about how much does she need to know. Do I tell her every time that I've uh, looked at a guy and thought he was attractive? 
or do I just tell her when I've acted out sexually with another man? And that's something that has to be determined on a case-by-case basis. Some wives are more able to handle more disclosure, more truth, and some wives do very badly the more that they know. But I believe that they all need to know. They have a right to know. Yes. Yes, and the church definitely encourages honesty in thought and action. Yep. So that would be in keeping with the church as well. What, now from the perspective of, let's say, someone who's helping someone with same-sex attraction, uh-huh. um, whether it's a family member or um, just a friend, what type of things could they do to help someone in that situation? So you're talking about a lay person. Right. Family member or a clinical leader? Right. Or is that a separate question? However you feel inclined to answer okay. it. <laughs> so, so let's talk about it in terms of uh, non-ecclesiastical, so family and friends. Um, the first thing by far that men need, and I would assume this would be true for women with a lot of things extraction too, is to know, number one, that they are loved, mm-hmm. that they are a part of the family, whether that means the ward family or the family family uh, or the, the family of friends, that they are loved, that they are accepted, um, to, uh, to try to understand them. Although if you've never been through this, it may be very difficult to understand it, but to, for them to know that you're trying to understand it, that you accept them. Uh, it's important for family members and others to not make um, uh, invalid assumptions. For example, um, I've, I've heard this occasionally. It's very disheartening. A man will say, you know, my, my brother found out that I have same-sex attraction, and now he won't let me be around his children because he thinks I'm going to molest them. So understanding some basic things, such as that homosexuality and pedophilia are two very different things, and homosexual men do not um, typically, very rarely do homosexual men want to molest children. So family members becoming informed, understanding their loved one, and loving their loved one is the key thing. Um, and then I would say next to that would be just encouraging them and supporting them and getting the support and the help that they need. Not trying to be their therapist, not trying to talk them out of therapy, uh, but encouraging them to get therapy if that is uh, warranted and if it's desired. So that would be, you know, how family and friends, I, I think, can best respond. Priesthood leaders, I think, can best respond much in the same way. Uh, first of all, making sure that they know that they are loved. Um, priesthood leaders often need to really go out of their way to demonstrate that because men with same-sex attraction tend to feel rejected. And so if the bishop walks by them in the foyer before or after church and doesn't say anything, they can easily construct the story that, you know, the bishop is embarrassed or doesn't want to talk to me or whatever. In the reality, you know, the bishop just didn't see him. So bishops need to be very cautious and make sure that they are uh, that they go out of their way to make sure that the man or the woman feels uh, loved and cared for. Um, I've often seen in wards where a bishop will ask someone in the ward, uh, maybe one of his counselors or an elders quorum leader, to really take special interest uh, in the man who's dealing with same-sex attraction. That has I've seen often how what a benefit that is because then the man feels like I have my sort of his own home teacher, you know, his own special guy that he can go to and talk talk to if, if the bishop's too busy to handle it himself. That's an amazing, a wonderful thing to do. 
Uh, and then the other thing that the bishop needs to do, similar to the family, is to make sure that the man gets the support and the help that he needs. Uh, I've seen bishops be very generous in helping ward members uh, obtain therapy when the ward member couldn't afford it. Uh, many bishops have paid for a great deal of therapy for their, their ward members. I've seen a few bishops who have uh, taken a different approach, who have said, no, the ward's not going to pay for that. And it's been pretty devastating to the to the member of the ward who couldn't receive the help he needed. Uh, and then the only other thing I would say is the bishops need to be cautious to understand that they really, it's not their job, it's not their calling, and they're, they're not um, really prepared to try to counsel the person psychologically. I think most bishops get that. Um, but then, on the other hand, to, to be very um, in tune with the spirit, to know how to counsel the man spiritually. Um, and that, I think, is the main way that, that priesthood leaders can help. One of the things that did strike me is you talked about the people with same-sex attraction need to feel loved, understood, and accepted. Yeah. Um, frequently, when I talk to people about dealing with people with same-sex attraction, unless it's someone that they know, like just talking in general terms, um, usually it's very different when it's a specific person. But in general terms, they feel uncomfortable knowing about the same-sex attraction, and they don't necessarily understand why it's so important to understand it, um, per se, that that's kind of their problem that they have to deal with. Why do they have to broadcast it? Why do they have to talk to people about it? How? What role does being understood play? So are you talking about from the perspective of the man dealing with it? So, yeah, so they, they wonder why a person who who deals with it has to be understood. Why do... Why do other people have to? Why do they have to share their feelings and what they're going through with other people? Couple of couple levels of reason. One, because they're human, and as human beings, we need to be understood. We want to be understood. I mean, that's why uh, you see in the scriptures, uh, scriptures that say things like "mourn with those that mourn, comfort those that stand in need of comfort." We, as human beings, need to be understood. We need to have people walk alongside us in our trials. And uh, those that are dealing with a lot of same-sex attraction have some very, uh, very often have some very serious, severe trials. Um, but also because uh, on a deeper level, um, those with same-sex attraction, um, a piece of what has probably caused the same-sex attraction in the first place, in other words, a very deep root to it, is that they have felt isolated, alienated, and misunderstood. Uh, and so if we want them to progress, if we want them to grow and develop, part of what they need to help them grow and develop is to be understood, to be heard, and to feel like they are part of um, the, the the family of the gospel. Let's talk about some of the other opportunities um, for people with same-sex attraction to receive help. Um, you are, have participated in People Can Change. Uh-huh. and specifically helped get the Journey into Manhood um, weekend going. Yep. Um, and most of our um, listeners are not familiar with that. Can you explain a little bit about what that is? Absolutely. Uh, Journey into Manhood weekend, uh, was, we started it in 2002, uh, so it's been around for almost 10 years now. Um, it is what we call an experiential weekend that is oriented for men um, – who have a desire to change or to shift their uh, sexuality. So it's not open to gays and lesbians, or, well, not, it's not open to women, but it's not open to gay men who do not want to change their sexual orientation, just to those who have already decided that they want to. Um, it's a 45-hour um, immersion 
in a variety of processes that help men more deeply understand themselves, uh, express themselves, feel connected with other men, uh, feel loved, uh, work through some of their deeper issues, uh, particularly using a process often called psychodrama, uh, which is basically a process of of addressing um, a painful life experience in the here and now. Um, We don't uh, claim that it is therapeutic, meaning it's not run by therapists, despite the fact that I am a therapist and I, in the past, have often been there. I don't, I don't participate much anymore in those weekends. Um, but uh, so it's not, it's not therapeutic in a professional sense. But the men who have gone uh, tend to, the vast majority of them tend to say that it was uh, very, very helpful. Many times they say it was life changing. Many people have um, expressed concerns when they hear about weekends like this or Evergreen or North Star or any of these other groups that they think it's very dangerous to get several men with same-sex attractions together. Can you respond to that? Yeah, um, and I, I understand that mentality. It's almost like the idea that you're going to hold an AA meeting at a bar um, the reality is that if men want to act out with other men, they're going to find them. They're going to find them one way or another. It's not hard to find a man to act out with. So, you know, it's not like by having these kinds of group associations that we're creating a problem. The problem already exists. Uh, and quite to the contrary, for the majority of these men, the opportunity to be with other men who really understand them because they've been through it, uh, because most of the staff for the Journey to Manhood Weekend have also uh, experienced same-sex attraction. They've been through the, gym, the Journey to Manhood Weekend, although some, we often have men there who are who've never experienced same-sex attraction. They have a lot of benefit to give. Um, but uh, th- these weekends, the Journey to Manhood Weekend, is um, it's a very safe experience. In other words, there's a lot of oversight. It's very carefully uh, put together and very carefully run so that men don't have the opportunity, nor are they at all in the mindset uh, on these weekends that they would want to do such a thing. These mindsets are, are these uh, weekends are so um, um, sort of life-altering because of the sort of spirit that is there that the last thing on a man's mind typically is that they want to do something with another man. Uh, they, they they do activities with other men, that, but the idea of being sexual with another man is just not what's going on on these weekends. It's just not even there. Uh, it, it's sort of like being in the temple and lusting after, you know, a woman. You, you tend not to, I mean, it's not that it's not possible, but you tend not to be in that mindset when you're in the temple. Uh, and it's kind of similar on these weekends. You're just in a very, very different place. Uh, I cannot vouch for evergreen groups. I have heard good and bad about evergreen groups. Um, I myself was a participant in an evergreen group 20 years ago and found it to be tremendously beneficial. Uh, that was 20 years ago. Um, I hear, like I said, a variety of things about evergreen groups today, so I really can't vouch for them now. Uh, they don't have nearly the oversight, as far as I know, uh, that our weekend has. We tend to have uh, somewhere around 20 staff men uh, on one of these weekends to um, about 30 participants. So it's two staff men for, for three participants. So there's, like I said, a lot of oversight is very carefully handled. Mm-hmm. Um, now, that's not to say that men um, don't form groups uh, around the weekend or after the weekend or that men form groups around Evergreen uh, you know, Evergreen's uh, organization or other things, and sometimes those groups get into trouble. Sometimes the men in those groups uh, choose not to adhere to wise boundaries, and, uh, and I've heard some horror stories about, uh, you know, groups sort of 
uh, breaking down, melting down, and some, you know, some very uncool things happening. So if you're going to have a, a group, if you're going to get together men with same-sex attraction, there needs to be a plan. It needs to be carefully considered how to make this a safe experience. I think that there needs to be a therapeutic um, purpose for it or a, a growth-enhancing purpose for it. Uh, I am not an advocate uh, of a lot of SSA social events. Uh, you know, meaning let's just get a bunch of guys with same-sex attraction together and have a, uh, you know, a, a, a social event. I'm not that, I'm not that fond of that because I think that these men, more than anything, really need to be learning how to mainstream with men who aren't experiencing same-sex attraction uh, because they have a lot less uh, likelihood of getting in trouble with those kinds of men. So, uh, there's a tremendous, to, to wrap up then, there's a tremendous benefit that can come from getting these men together for certain kinds of group experiences and group activities like these weekends when there's a very particular reason you're doing it and when it's carefully created to create a growth um, uh, benefit. And on the other hand, uh, just like with anything else that exists, uh, Satan can use it for evil. Um, and so there, you know, there are uh, not so cool things that can happen from those kinds of group experiences as well. So you talked about that journey to manhood has a lot of oversight, but that it's not therapeutic. Right. Right. So what? What is, is just the number of staff there, or what is oh, this oversight? Good, good question. Um, the Journey Manhood Weekend has a, I think the protocol is about 100 pages. It's a very specific protocol. Every minute of their time is accounted for, meaning that there's going to be some kind of an exercise or a process. Uh, you know, there's, you know, there, there are breaks and there are meals, uh, but the beginning and the end of those is, you know, is pretty carefully, um, controlled as well. Uh, they sleep, um, in quarters that are, <laughs> I hate to sound like we're too controlling, but we have someone there, you know, when they're, uh, when they sleep in the cabins at night, uh, they don't sleep in groups of two, you know, we're just very careful about the way we go about it. And the, in terms of the oversight, um, it's really the protocol that creates the oversight. In other words, the the, the staff are are lay people. Most of them. There's there's always at least one therapist there, one trained um, licensed therapist who's on on staff every weekend. Um, but most of the staff are doing what they do according to this protocol. We've done this protocol now, I think, 58 times, and we know how to work it. Um, and so it's the protocol that really makes sure that the weekend is a beneficial, uh, helpful weekend. Did that answer the question? Yes. Okay. Um, so you do have someone who's licensed, but it itself is not considered part of therapy. Why is it not, like, overseen by the APA and part of a therapeutic license weekend? Personally, because it, it doesn't need to be, um, because the APA, I mean, having it overseen by the APA would be like, you know, having, having a, a, a cat babysit a mouse. Um uh, but the reason that we don't have ther more therapists there is because it would be, become extremely expensive. It would become really a therapy weekend, um, and it's just not necessary. It's, it's very, uh, very productive the way, it, the way it is. The reason that we do have one therapist there is because occasionally there's a man who ends up on the weekend who really is not ready to be there. We do some pretty careful screening before the weekend. Uh, you know, we ask him a lot of questions. We have him take a, um, um, a, and, and, fill out an instrument that helps us see if there's some serious disorders because then the weekend really isn't for them at that point. But there are men who get there and kind of, you know, have uh, some difficulties or some meltdowns, you know, because it brings up some pretty intense stuff. Um, 
And so the therapist is there to make sure that those men are, are kept safe. I mean, because I have heard many critics who talk about that it's this the whole changing your sexual orientation is like pseudoscience and is not based in reality. But you're telling me that these people you have your license, you're running your operation under a license. You have people who are licensed at these weekends. It's not like this is pseudoscience. Well, I'm not quite sure what they mean by pseudoscience. I mean. Uh, I know an awful lot of, um, I shouldn't say an awful lot, I know of therapists who are not working in this area, and what they do with their clients seems like pseudoscience to me. I mean, uh, therapists can do whatever they want uh, in, in, within the walls of their practice. You know, they can, you know, have any, any type of therapeutic approach they want to, and some are more um, scientifically based than others. The reality is that most therapeutic approaches don't have a ton of research behind them. I mean, it's a little bit scary if people really realize there, there's not a, there's not a ton of research behind a lot of what therapists do in their office. Therapists tend not to be research-based. Uh, they tend to be based on, you know, this is what I've been doing, this is what seems to work for my clients, and so that's what I do. So I talk to them this way, and I use this tone of voice, and I use this kind of an intervention. And very often it's not, like I said, it's not, it's not scientifically based. There's not a ton of research to prove that what they're doing is efficacious. So for people to um, accuse uh, therapists that do what I do of that is a little absurd because it's um, not really very, it's pretty disingenuous. Uh, what I do, um, I do what works. And when I find something that works better, I drop what I was doing and I do the new thing. And I've done that over, over the whole course of my 15 years as a therapist. I keep looking for something that works better. Uh, and, uh, and I use that. And that's what most therapists do. That's exactly what, I, yeah, I think what I do is pretty much what most therapists do. Okay, thank you very much. All right, good luck to you. Thanks. Questions or comments about this episode can be sent to podcast at fairlds.org or join the conversation at fairblog.org. Tell your friends about us and help increase the popularity of this podcast by subscribing in iTunes and by writing a review. Music for this episode was provided courtesy of Lawrence Green. The opinions expressed in this podcast are not necessarily the views of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints or of FAIR.